Support for WERU comes from Village Soup, the Republican Journal, providing the communities of Waldo, Knox, and Hancock counties with news, information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. The time is 3.59 and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for Wednesday, December 21st, 2016. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Happy winter solstice. A few weeks ago, we put out a call for your stories on the themes of holidays, families, and winter here in Maine. Here's how you responded. Grab a warm drink, sit back, and enjoy. I'm the Reverend Dr. Anu Dudley. I'm a retired history professor and an ordained pagan minister. I teach classes in earth-based spirituality around the state of Maine, and I'm especially interested in the three-year ordination class that I teach at the Temple of the Feminine Divine. I live in the woods off the grid, and I live a, a very, uh, I live very close to the earth. My short feature is Earthwise, uh, Reflections on Earth-Based Spirituality, and it can be heard Saturday mornings at 7.30. The winter solstice is an event which over the past few decades has become popular as a festive holiday. More than just a solar phenomenon, it is now a celebration to welcome back the light. Winter solstice celebrations have taken many forms over the millennia, changing as society changes and redefines the meaning of this solar event. Today, we're going to explore the history of the winter solstice celebration, how it has changed over time, and how it might mean to us today. The word solstice comes from the Latin, meaning sun stands still. The solstice tide is a period of about two weeks, that is, a week on each side of the solstice, when the amount of daylight remains the same. At the winter solstice in our latitude, we settle down into 8 hours and 48 minutes of daylight on December 14th and continue at this level until December 28th, when the sun begins adding a minute of daylight to each day. This increases to 3 or 4 minutes per day as the sun approaches the equinox and then begins to slow down again as the sun reaches the two-week period surrounding the summer solstice. I like to think of this annual solar waxing and waning as the sun going back and forth between the North Pole and the South Pole, making yearly visits to her two grandmothers. At the winter solstice, the sun is visiting her grandmother who lives at the South Pole. After a two-week stay, she begins walking north, crossing the equator at the spring equinox and arriving at Grandmother North's abode at the summer solstice. I speak of the sun as she because in much earlier times the sun was gendered female. She was called O Mother Sun, she who nurtured and protected all beings on earth and without whom life would not be possible. It was only after societies descended into civilization, allowing hierarchies and the patriarchy to develop, that Mother Sun was dismissed and male gods seized the sovereignty of the sun. The solstice is an astronomical event whose exact timing is determined by technical and mechanical measurements. Methods for obtaining these measurements were developed early on in human history. The earliest known measuring devices were stone structures that were set up to mark the furthest reaches of the sun's path, which occurred at the solstices. We are already familiar with some of these structures, such as Stonehenge in England and the New Grange Passage Grave in Ireland. Why early cultures thought it was important to mark the sun's annual movements with these imposing stone structures is not exactly known, because these early peoples left no written explanations. But evidence from folklore and mythology suggests that the sun and its movements had spiritual significance and figured in their religious practices. When Christianity overspread the Western world, indigenous spiritual and religious observances related to the winter solstice began to be converted as well. 
Astronomers have suggested that if there were an historical Jesus, he would most likely have been born in the late spring, because at the time when Jesus would have been born, there was an actual tri-planet convergence which, to the naked eye, would have looked like the three wise men's brilliant star of the East. Therefore, the midwinter dates of his birthday <clears throat> would not be accurate. <clears throat> but be that as it may, in the 4th century, Pope Gregory issued a clever political edict instructing churchmen to convert pagan sites and holidays to Christian use. Since to Christian eyes the winter solstice appeared to celebrate the birth of the sun, the church overlaid the birthday of Christ onto the winter solstice. Most, if not all, of the images, traditions, and folklore surrounding the winter solstice were thus subsumed under the veneration of Christmas, which was now all about the birth of the Son of God. Whereas in earlier times, the winter solstice focused on Mother Yule and her perpetual gift of life, the new Christian version demoted the mother to the subsidiary character of the Virgin Mary. This is not to say that the son of the mother played no role in the annual cycle of the year. There are dozens of myths that tell about the mother and her son who grew to manhood each year and became her consort. But the son generally did not become a player in his own right until the spring. The winter solstice was all about Mother Yule and her role in the perpetuity of life and the turning of the wheel of the year. Other winter solstice symbols converted to use in the Christmas story were the dove, the star, the tree, and even Santa Claus. Pictured in much of medieval art and still a popular motif on Christmas cards, the dove was a Judeo-Christian symbol of peace, the Holy Spirit, and the messenger of God. But the dove was originally a symbol of the mother goddess. Archaeological evidence from as much as 7,000 years ago reveals that throughout the Middle East and the Mediterranean world, the dove was venerated as the avatar of the goddess. Before the Greek goddess Athena was demoted to a mere war goddess, she was the great mother goddess, pictured as a dove with an olive branch in her beak, symbolizing peace, abundance, and the renewal promised by the return of the sun at the winter solstice. The star is another ancient symbol that was borrowed from earlier pagan times. Originally, the star was associated with the queen of heaven, she who created all of life. So many goddess names contain the word star. Astarte, Ishtar, Esther, Ostara, and Stella Maris, and so forth. Stars were the souls which the mother goddess bestowed upon newborns. The Milky Way was once a symbol of the goddess's life-giving milk, and the word galaxy means milk of the goddess. Much later, when male gods took over the rulership of heaven and earth, the star became a symbol of earthly power. The star remained a symbol of guidance, however, and so found its way into the Christmas story, leading the three wise men to the Christ child. But hearkening back to the winter solstice, the star was an ornament of Mother Yule, and so it has special significance when set atop the solstice tree, representing the sovereignty and protection of the goddess. The tree is perhaps the most iconic image of the Christmas season, whose roots go deep into winter solstice lore and even deeper into the mythology of the creator goddess. Humans seem always to have had a spiritual relationship with trees. Ancient lore depicted the universe spinning around a central axis, the axis mundi, the central pole that was the world tree. Sumerian myth pictured the great mother as a fig tree whose branches reached out to embrace humanity, who suckled at her pendulous fig breasts. Norse tradition has its own world tree, Yggdrasil, whose roots drew up the waters of life and sent the nourishment to all beings living in its branches, 
to the gods and humans alike. The world tree was also the tree of knowledge, which got Eve into so much trouble when she ate of its fruit in her quest to become an adult and come into her own goddess-given divine nature. God said, no, you will remain ignorant of the mystery of life. But Eve was on to something. She knew that trees were believed to elevate human consciousness and to enable one to receive occult knowledge. For instance, the Buddha sat beneath the sacred Bodhi tree to receive enlightenment. The tree was such a powerful symbol in the ancient world that it could not be banished with the advent of Christianity, especially since trees provided people with actual resources for nourishment, medicine, construction, and warmth. But the ancient meaning of the tree as the central core of life and the source of divine wisdom became diluted. Our northern latitude's annual evergreen tree became simply a representation of the undying spirit of the natural world, even in the depths of winter. And today, the tree has been degraded even further into a holiday decorating icon and an altar to consumerism. The winter solstice tree is closely linked to another important figure, Santa Claus. This corpulent, today's corpulent Santa Claus was created for a Coca-Cola advertising campaign in the early 20th century, and this image was adapted from the work of 19th century illustrator Thomas Nast, who was inspired in turn by Clement Moore's famous 1822 poem, The Night Before Christmas. But Santa's lineage goes back to the third century when he went about the streets of Turkey dressed as the legendary Bishop Nicholas who fed and clothed the poor and filled children's shoes with sweets on his Saint's Day, December 6th. Nicholas became Sinterklaas as his legend spread into Northern Europe. From there, he traded his bishop's robe and mitre for the fur-trimmed suit and hat of an elf-like figure who smoked a long-stemmed pipe and brought gifts for deserving girls and boys. But before any of these characters existed, a Santa Claus-like figure had already been living and working in his community, for Santa Claus was a shaman. Originally, shamans were women, for it was believed that women's intuitive nature, plus their ability to give birth, made it natural for them to enter the spirit realm. But regardless of gender, a shaman enters a trance, climbs the world tree, and goes off on a journey to the invisible world, ringing bells, beating a drum, chanting and singing, until arriving in the other world. There, the shaman gathers information needed for healing and the solving of life's problems and brings these gifts back to the people who are waiting at the base of the world tree. Santa's own journey through the night sky is like the shaman's journey to the spirit realm. Santa's sleigh is pulled by eight reindeer, an ancient symbol of the mother goddess's power of abundance and reminiscent of Odin's eight-legged mare, Sleipnir, who carried him to magical realms. When Santa was a shaman, he rose up the world tree, the solstice tree, the tree of ancient wisdom, to gather and bring back the magical gifts that sustained and prospered the people. But here is what really gives Santa away as a shaman. Clement Moore ends his poem with the line, and laying a finger aside of his nose and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. The chimney is just another form of the world tree, and the gesture of laying his finger on the side of his nose is an old Celtic sign of shamanic knowledge. So now that we understand some of the ancient antecedents of Christmas symbols, we might want to reclaim them for our celebration of the winter solstice. But still, there is something missing from all this, and that is the element of darkness. I have heard many people say that they can't stand the darkness of this time of year and eagerly await the return of daylight. 
What they don't understand, and what Christmas and our lit-up world has pretty successfully obliterated, is knowledge and appreciation of the uses of darkness. The dark quarter of the year, from the fall equinox to the winter solstice, is a natural and beneficial part of the yearly cycle of the seasons. I have heard some claim, however, that ancient peoples were afraid at this time of year, worried that the sun might not return, and engaged in ceremonies to strengthen the sun and coax it back. This is nonsense. People in ancient times who lived close to the earth and its natural rhythms knew from experience and from the experience of their ancestors that the daylight would return as it had done from time immemorial. Instead of imploring the sun to return, they took full advantage of the dark quarter to enrich their lives with the gifts of darkness. It is a universal and ancient understanding that out of night comes day. That is why our day begins at midnight. This understanding comes from people's experience that out of the lightless womb comes new life. Out of the dark earth comes new growth, and out of the deep, dark sea comes untold abundance. It was believed that all life came out of dark depths, which we cannot understand rationally, but must instead access through our intuition, or sixth sense, to fully experience and know. The dark quarter was the time of the year when the veil between the invisible and the manifest worlds was thin, the thinning being aided by the darkness. This meant the spirits of our ancestors could pass from their realm into ours, communicate with us, and be part of our human community, if not in body, then certainly in spirit. The dark quarter was the time to honor the ancestors who were the life-givers, who created the generations that followed. While the mother goddess blessed them with the powers of regeneration, it was the ancestors who actually created and nurtured the next generation, acting as agents of the mother goddess, and thus making them divine as well. Although at Halloween or Samhain we make token gestures at acknowledging the dead as scary ghosts, Still, we don't do very well at honoring the beloved dead. But in earlier times, during the three months of the Dark Quarter, people had many celebrations to honor their ancestors and their beloved dead, especially in December, in what was called the Yuletide. The origin of the word Yule is uncertain, but some have related it to the Germanic word Gyuli, which referred to the period of weeks surrounding the winter solstice. During the Yuletide season, people observed the raw nights, performing divination and seances to communicate with the spirit world. They engaged in smudging nights, burning special incense, like Die Frauen Dreisiger, the 30 women incense, made of 30 different herbs to attract and nourish the spirits so they could give people the advice they needed. Families kept watch for the elf ride, a procession of the beloved dead that passed over the land and the people to bless them in the coming year. And finally, people observed Modronite, Mother's Night, when the spirits of female ancestors were welcomed to the table, <clears throat> feasted, and honored as the givers of life <clears throat> and the ones who turned the wheel of the year to propel the next cycle. These celebrations were filled with gratitude and love, not the fear and trepidation that later ages were taught to experience. The Yuletide season was about merriment and good cheer for the gift of life. The Dark Quarter was also a time to reconnect with and affirm one's heritage. This was the time for storytelling. Stories that were only told at this season. Stories about land and lineage about how and why families and communities believed and behaved as they did. To our ancestors, the winter solstice was a celebration of life, for out of the darkness comes light, out of night comes day, 
and out of the beloved dead comes the newborn babe. The darkness was rich in the substances <clears throat> needed for creation. And so the winter solstice, at the darkest time of the year, is also a festival of light, not because we are trying to fend off the darkness, but because we are celebrating the light that comes out of the darkness, the light that is the great gift of darkness. My wish for all of you at this solstice tide is that you enjoy the embrace of darkness and its life-affirming and life-renewing energy, and that you may feel safe and happy in the arms of Mother Yule. Blessed be. That was Dr. Reverend Anu Dudley, host of Earthwise, a short feature that airs here on WERU every Saturday morning at 7.30. You're listening to the Winter Solstice edition of Maine Currents. Today we're featuring stories of holidays, families, and winter told by members of our community. Up next, we visit Surrey back in the day. Hello, my name is Marjorie Longwood, and I'm the daughter of John McGraw, who was one of 10 children of Samuel Alexander and Lulu Florence McGraw, known to most everyone as Sandy and Florence. They were, uh, the children were born mostly in Surrey, Maine, and uh, they grew up there. And except for the oldest two girls, they lived there all of their lives. Their stories are typical, I think, of stories of the boys in large families who made their own entertainment by harassing each other and getting into mischief and adventures together. And when my mother started to fail in her later years, it was in the late 80s and early 90s, my father took care of her and uh, in the uh, times he had to do something on his own, he'd sit and write down some of these stories. A cousin came in one day when he was writing them and she said, well, I'll take those to uh, a book uh, publisher I work for in Boston and get it printed up and keep on writing, she said, and he did. And eventually, I think there are 14 books that look like self-published books of 100 and 150 pages apiece of stories that he wrote during that time. John was born in 1916 up on Murphy Road in Surrey, and he was the sixth child of the ten children. Now just imagine this as you hear these stories. Grandma McGraw was particularly educated for her time, and she had completed eight grades of school and gone to normal school, that's what it was called, and so she taught, I guess, before she started having these children and had the 10 children in 18 to 20 years. So you can imagine what a busy woman she was. So he was born 100 years ago, and 97 years ago, he burned down their farm on Murphy Road. Grandma came into the kitchen and found that Johnny, aged two and a half to three, was sitting on the floor and he'd made a fire to scare the wolves away. Now the reason he was afraid of the wolves was the stories that his father told and Sandy McGraw was a wonderful storyteller. Well Grandma grabbed Joel, uh, grabbed John and put the fire out and uh, John went and hid under the sink but he took the matches with him and soon he'd caught the batten used for um, insulation um, on fire and that farmhouse was no more. They moved to the Stafford farm. That place is still known by its name, although there's no farm there, until John was 12. And it's right in those pre-adolescent ages when the boys seem to get into a lot of trouble, isn't it? They lived a mile from the farm to the old Surrey school that's being renovated now. And John and the younger boys followed Sue and Dora and Richard and Charlie 
to that school until they'd each completed nine grades. Now it was nine grades rather than eight because in the winter the snow was so thick they couldn't get there. So they had to go an extra um, uh, an extra year to make up what education they'd lost to the snow. They went back to the village to live in 1929 and moved to Ellsworth in 1930 when Sandy's uh, mail route changed from originating in Surrey to originating in Ellsworth. John wrote that he was redhead and freckled with a temper to match, and I think as his daughter, I probably inherited some of that. The more he wrote, and this would happen in any family, the more he wrote, the more he remembered, but he wouldn't edit the early remembrances from just adding another remembrance of the same story. And so when my cousin, a retired surgeon in Alaska, took the first uh, book to edit and rewrite, he found uh, the same story written in several different versions throughout John's work. Every night at home in the Stafford farm, Mama, as they called her, called her, read the Bible and two or three chapters of an adventure story like about the dog Tarzan. Then the kids would get into bed and say prayers and then say good night, each one to all of the others upstairs there, um, like the Waltons did on t TV. And uh, they'd do that until Grandpa would stand at the foot of the stairs and say, okay, shut up and go to sleep. And they um, then would whisper from under the covers, good night, good night. John and Dora shared a bed because they both went to bed and there was only one oilcloth to put under the sheet. Upstairs in bed, Richard used to hire him to scratch his back and said he'd give John a penny for a hundred scratches. Dora wrote the, and published the first book about the family down to the bay, which was not in chronological order, and the younger boys declared it's not always right. So John decided he would write the story, and uh, and he did so, and it, but it ended up he was out of chronological order too, so he had no right to criticize Doris. John wrote in great detail about the location of the Surrey houses, and that was always boring to me until I realized that when I moved into Surrey on Patton Pond Road in 2011, I was about a mile as the crow flies from where they had grown up, so it seemed like coming home to family. But enough about geography. Let me tell you a little bit about each of the 10 McGraw children who all reached adulthood, which is a very positive comment on the upbringing they had. Grandfather had the income from the uh, uh, mail route, and then they always had a cow for milk and protein and a big garden, and uh, the kids would help with the gardens and then also with, with um, canning and, and stuff. John didn't write much about Sue, the oldest. He, I think he saw her as sort of a second mother, and I'm sure he protected her from any of the deviltry the other boys wanted to pull on her. Uh, he told me often that Sue, the oldest, uh, birthed several of the younger kids. And, and you see, if you're having 10 kids over 20 years, that, that's indeed possible. Uh, she went to Peter Bent Brigham Nursing School in Boston and uh, was the uh, highest one in her class. And uh, she was a nurse at Colby College and died very young at 61 of a brain tumor. The next child in line was Dora and she became a nurse too. She married Art Bostwick in Manchester, New Hampshire, a tall man who later became the police chief there. And when he came to visit the family, Art came out to the barn where John was milking the cows and asked if he could help. And John said, yeah, take that bucket over there and uh, you can milk that red cow over there. 
Well, the bucket had been used to carry sawdust around, and Art says, that's a little dirty, isn't it? And John said, well, we strained the milk. And the cow to which he referred Art was a heifer that had never freshened and never been milked. And so when this big old guy sat down on the on the milking stool to milk the heifer, he got moved mightily fast by the heifer herself. Aunt Dora was red-haired and feisty like my father, and up into the time when she was high, in the late 80s, she'd drive herself up to Blue Hill to visit with some of her siblings. And one day she was visiting Aunt Margie and Sam, my cousin, and she complained about always getting lost in Portland and around Portland. So Sam said, let's get out the map, see if we can't map and see why you have trouble around Portland. Well, they got out the map and it turned out it was a map from 1952 when the interstate hadn't even been built yet. And so Sam got her straightened out, but um, she drove herself less and less. In her 90s, she'd always greet family members, uh, those of my generation, the cousins, with, who the hell are you? Because she, she didn't remember who we were. I remember I was at the wedding of one of them, and she said that to me. Now, the next in line was Richard, and he married Helen Milliken from Surrey, and he lived there where um, his daughter Jane now lives until Richard died from inhaling the smoke from uh, burning formica glue. Uh, shortly thereafter, there were some changes made in that, but Richard died uh, prematurely young from that uh, accident. But when Mama and Papa were late getting home, Richard was often the one to uh, cook supper. And one night, he found an angleworm in the cabbage he was cooking, and he put it next to his plate on the table, which was also next to Uncle Bill's plate. Now, Bill had a very weak stomach. He took one look at the worm and headed for the woodshed. One time, Johnny had an inchworm on his shoulder when he went to wash his hands, and uh, he was sure that Bill could see that. And then when they sat down, June, Johnny moved his finger like an inchworm across the table, and Bill got up and knocked Johnny right out of his chair, but he, Johnny was laughing so hard he didn't get hurt. John's written a lot of stories about attending the old Surrey schoolhouse that's currently under renovation, and sometime I'm going to put those stories together. But in order to find them, you have to go through two or three books because Johnny would write for a while and he'd go back to something else. Uh, Charlie was one of, uh, probably was the first one to leave the nest. He quit school at age 14 or 15 and signed on with a crew that um, ran some rich person's um, uh, yacht. And one day he was entertaining his brothers um, with a visit on the yacht, and he brought them a beef stew to eat. He said, now the cook says he's lost a dish rag in the stew, so um, if you find it, pull it out and wring it out, will you? Well, they didn't think that was very, uh, uh, very tasty. One thing the boys would do when they were living in Surrey was go sliding on what's called Sperry Hill, which is the hill out of Surrey to Blue Hill. And uh, you, if you could get to the top, you'd get quite a ride down. If, the, if uh, it was just one person on the sled, you might get as far as Dolph Kane's store, which is the, now the Surrey store at the foot of the hill. And if there's two or three of you piled on, you might go as far as Willard Kane's store. Well, Arnold and Danny... And my father always referred to the three of them as Arnold, Nine, Danny, got into the most mischief. And I'm afraid Arnold and Danny, being younger, were badly influenced by my brother, uh, by their brother John. Later in life, the three of them with um, uh, Colby Wood would go golfing. And my father gave up on that when he said uh, the others were getting too, um, too intense about it. And um, father liked to play the game, but he didn't like the intensity of the competition. 
and competitive these boys were. John and Arnold used to play ping pong, and in one series, Arnold had won 99 games, but John bet him something, a certain amount of money, that he would win the 100th game, and he did. What else these boys did? They overturned outhouses on Halloween, and one time they'd overturn an outhouse, and they didn't realize a 300-pound woman was sitting in it, and they had to go get the owner of the outhouse. Well, they didn't confess. It was they who turned it over, and they got that situation straightened out. Straightened out. One Halloween, they put a carriage up on the top of what is now Kane's store, and one time parked their own carriage so close to the front door people couldn't get in or out. But maybe Arnold got some redemption. Well, one time they saw a pigeon frozen to the roof of the store, and Arnold went and got a ladder long enough to get up to the roof over those three stories and rescue the pigeon. When the mail route began Ellsworth rather than Surrey, uh, this was interesting. It's mentioned several times of one family trading a house for another. And uh, Sandy did that and traded his Surrey house for the house next to the Black Mansion. By this time, there were five kids at home. Others had gone off to nursing school, and there was still more to be born. And they played with the uh, Black descendants who still lived in the mansion. Uh, the McGraw boys lived close enough, so if they did some mischief at home and were afraid of getting caught, they'd run and hide in the Black's big doghouse. Charlie worked for the owner of LePage's Glue for a long time. Bill drove a steam shovel. Danny worked in the post office in Surrey. Arnold worked in Rebbe's Cold Boatyard. And John cut wood for the Bucksport Mill and had a milk farm later with a man in Blue Hill. And according to the stories, I have to say, the two youngest girls, Margie, who married Paul Woodard, and Mary, who uh, married uh, Mike Asbury shortly after the Second World War, that the girls escaped the harassment the boys gave each other. Well, I hope as I've shared these stories from John's writing, you've uh, thought of some parallels uh, in your own life or the life of your family, and I'd encourage you to write them down. They don't have to be 100% true. Heaven's not my, my father never let the truth interfere with a good story, and so I hope you have enjoyed these today. That was Marjorie Longwood. You can hear more of her stories of her Surrey ancestors on the archived edition of Main Currents for November 16th at WERU.org. This is the Winter Solstice edition of Main Currents on WERU. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Up next, stories by Edie Howland of Blue Hill, Kathy Mink of Waldo, and Roger Sprague of Belfast. My name's Edie Howland, and I live in Blue Hill, Maine, and I do work in the field of health care. So this story really touched me because it does involve both our physical bodies and our spirit. This holiday season is one of giving, of kindness, of compassion, and of helping one another. On December 20th this year at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, a special exchange of gifts is taking place, life-giving gifts. Two men, a father who has raised a loving son and a son who loves his father, agree to a courageous endeavor. My brother-in-law, a man in his early 70s, has been on dialysis for five months. His kidney function perilously low due to polycystic kidney disease. He sought a kidney donor for a transplant. All the family members went through an evaluation, but none were matches or were ruled out due to age or particular health conditions. The two adult sons were each willing to donate a kidney for their father, but one son has the beginning indications of the same condition, which does have a genetic component, and thus he is not a candidate. The other son is not a match for his father, but this arrangement can be made when that is the case. The son donates one of his kidneys to a kidney bank available for another person in need, and a kidney donor who is a match will donate a kidney for the father. The donor, a woman in her 50s, 
will have her surgery done at Johns Hopkins in the morning on December 20th. Then this kidney will be flown to Cleveland and the father will receive the transplant that night. The son's surgery, removing one of his kidneys, will take place in the morning on December 20th. Father and son chose to have their surgeries at the same time so that they can stay together visiting in a hotel that adjoins the hospital the night before and then be in the hospital together as they recover with the son's mom, the father's wife, visiting. The father, the recipient of the kidney, will have a more prolonged recovery period than the son. From the dark, long night of the solstice, new light and life are brought forth. The love expressed, the courage, the medical, surgical, technical skills that humankind has developed to have the capacity for such an exchange to take place. How wonderful it is to be able to honor and celebrate these fine expressions of the human spirit on this solstice day. This next storyteller is Kathy Mink of Waldo. Our youngest daughter, Jo, had been away at college for several years, but along with her siblings, had been able to get home for Christmas. This year, however, she had accepted a position in Germany as an au pair um, with a German family who had young children. This experience would give her an opportunity to intensify her ability to speak the German language, which she'd been studying at school for a while. And being an attractive young woman, Jo had a few young men in her life who were no more thrilled about her going abroad for an extended period than we were. In any event, the day came in September of that year for her to go to the airport and fly via Lufthansa, the German airline, once she reached Greenland. As one who intensely dislikes flying, I remember feeling relief that she would be flying with that German airline because it had such a good reputation for safe, uh, reliable travel. One of her admirers, of course, also was with us, and we all watched her disappear into the security zones of the airport. And then we dashed to the window where we could see her plane taxi down the runway and become airborne with our darling Joe on board. Needless to say, it was a terrible time for me. Joe wrote home often. She um, sent letters that were cheerful, full of news about what it was like in the household of her host family there in Germany. As for us back home, the empty nest syndrome was still very much with us, especially as we contemplated our first Christmas without our children coming home for Christmas. Not any of them, neither chick nor child, as they say. We were not planning even a Christmas tree for the holidays that year. Joe's letters began to sound as if she was a little homesick, so I began to assemble a Christmas care package of uh, one or two favorite tree ornaments, some small gifts wrapped in Christmas paper, and some homemade cookies, which we hoped would not be in crumbs by the time she got them for Christmas. Especially heartbreaking for us was her next letter in which she asked us to promise that we would put up a Christmas tree so that she could think of what was happening at home just as she had remembered it. It was a hard letter to read. (laughs) But Christmas Eve came and with a tearful eye, a small tree was put up in the dining room with the usual lights and the favorite ornaments of each of the children while Christmas carols were playing and a few cookies were eaten along with a glass of eggnog. So going off to bed, twas the night before Christmas came to my mind and as I looked into the bedroom where Joe and her sister would have been sleeping with visions of sugar plums dancing in their heads. It was a terrible moment as well. As I awoke on Christmas morning, realizing that it was just Clifford, my husband, and myself here this year, there was no great rush to get downstairs or even to get out of bed for that matter. So 
Um, I slowly got up, contemplated what to put on the table for breakfast, and as I walked out into the hall, again looking into the girl's bedroom, I saw that the door was closed, and I thought, I don't remember closing that door. So I opened the door, and lo and behold, I saw the golden head of our darling Joe on the pillow. There was such great joy. I I shrieked, I'm sure, <laughs> and I rushed to embrace her. And I ran to the bedroom to tell her dad that Joe was home for Christmas. Breakfast that morning was memorable. Joe had brought gifts of German chocolate, a German candle carousel, which we lighted and happily watched the wooden figures dancing and the horses going round and round as the heat from the candle made them whirl faster and faster. And yes, the most favored of Joe's admirers was there at the table too. I have a suspicion that he was one of the reasons that Joe had come home. She had arranged to meet him in New York as she arrived from Germany and they drove through the night to be home for Christmas. That's the end. My name is Roger Sprague. I was born on July 2nd, 1929 on my father's birthday uh, in Belfast on 37 Congress Street. And that was where I grew up. But my mother was Charlotte Braley, who grew up in Belfast and was born here. My father was born out in Belmont. But uh, I think they got married in 1913. Uh, they had a big family of 10 children. So I grew up during the Depression years. Um, my youngest brother was born in 1934. I, I was uh, seven down the line. I remember on Christmas Eve, my father always went around his mail route a second time because many people bought their Christmas presents and the catalogs. And so we always ate supper at six o'clock at night. Well, Christmas Eve, well, I remember a, a snowy night. We're waiting for Dad to arrive, and, and he went with horse and sleigh. And then finally we heard the sleigh bells coming up the driveway. And uh, so then we could have our supper, a Christmas Eve supper after Dad got back from delivering all the extra presents that came. His uh, route was 30-something miles, and he went uh, out to uh, Swanville on the west side of Swan Lake and uh, over to Bel um, Waldo, over Route 131 in that neighborhood, and uh, finally uh, came down, I think it was maybe 137 back home to Belfast. See, in those days, all the mailmen had horses, and they had to have two horses because they couldn't drive the same horse, their roots, two days in a row. The horse had to rest a day in there. So, I, and I can remember in the mud, mud season, uh, they went in wagons. The roads were too muddy in the country, some of them, to drive a car on. And uh, the, I can remember the, the, one of the horses, uh, his name was Red Madden that my father had. When he'd bring him out in the wagon and have him hitched up, he would be hanging onto something in the wagon and he, he wouldn't put his foot on the stirrup to get in until he was all solid. The minute that his foot hit the stirrup, the horse took off. Whoops. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
And he, Dad would be hanging on the side of the wagon, getting into his seat as he was going down the driveway. <laughs> there was a lot of snow. Well, I was thinking, saying the other day, at Thanksgiving, we used to, after we ate our dinner, we used to go up to the mountain and go skating, everybody. Today, if you went up there with the skates, you'd drown. We've hardly seen any ice on the mud puddles yet. The city of Belfast, well, we kids called it the Ticker Tacker. It, it had a, a track, had uh, ran on a, a track like the snowmobile. Uh, and it was a big track to like that had quite a big plow on the front. That uh, They always got the roads all plowed okay, but uh, the country roads, I think they didn't get them plowed a lot of times. That's why they had to take the horse and sleigh. I could remember when the men used to come up. See, uh, our house was on the end of Pine Street, but that from Congress Street up was just a driveway. It wasn't Pine Street. But then the city men would plow up there anyway. Uh, saved us having to shovel all that. And uh, so Dad would always said would bring him out some hard cider. <laughs> uh, in the fall, because we had a farm on Conger Street, we had about uh, up to four cows. Uh, some years we raised a pig and always had chickens and we had ducks usually too, so we had the eggs from both chickens and ducks, and uh, and other other animals, of course. Dad never had any money to give to us. Well, I take that back a little bit. About once every two weeks, he'd give each of us little kids. I was among the five little kids. We called it a penny. And we'd go down to Herb Stevens' store on Cedar Street and buy candy. If you bought the right things, you could get five or six pieces of candy for a penny or something. But that was all. But that was a big thing for us. Yeah. And I know other kids in the neighborhood who never even got the got a penny. We always had a, a beautiful Christmas. We had a Christmas tree, and of course, with 12 people getting presents on the tree, there were all kinds of them. And we, as kids, we tried to save up a dollar during the year. For a dollar, you could buy each other a Christmas present in Woolworths for 10 cents apiece. You could get like a rubber car or, or a little doll or some, something like that for each other and so we always had a wonderful time opening our Christmas presents. They were nothing very expensive but we we all got well seven or eight presents apiece at least and and my grandmother Sprague always knit all of us a pair of mittens for Christmas that they were the mittens were just hanging on the tree. They weren't wrapped up with with a tag or the name on them and and things like that. So Christmas was always wonderful and exciting for us. Well and, and my mother of course sewed clothes for all of us and she made us boys shirts and she made all the girls dresses for them and things like that. And she had presents like that for us at Christmas. That was Roger Sprague of Belfast with stories of Christmas during the Depression. If you'd like to hear more of his stories about growing up in Belfast in the 30s and 40s, check out the August 16th edition of Maine Currents, which is archived at WERU.org. Many thanks to Roger's friend and WERU volunteer, Bill Solomon, for assistance with that piece. Before Roger, we heard from Kathy Mink, and before that, Marjorie Longwood. 
Ten years ago, WERU had a pledge drive right around this time of year, and I went around with the recorder asking the staff and volunteers who were here that week how they felt about the holiday season. Here are some clips. Travel back with me now to 2006 and see how many of these voices you recognize. Well, basically, the holidays suck. Um, I mean, I'm a God-fearing man, but uh, this this Jesus thing should be in the mall where it belongs. Put Jesus back in the mall. I couldn't care less about the holidays. I find them actually offensive. I celebrate Fourth of July and Labor Day. Thank you very much. Holiday season is great. I think it's sometimes a little over-commercialized, but the important thing is time with family and friends, and um, I really appreciate that part of it. I think holidays, all holidays, are absolutely wonderful, and I think as a culture, we don't celebrate them sufficiently, and that does not mean dollars and shopping and presents. That means being and doing and carrying a spirit and imbuing others around you with it, and I'm all for doing more of it. And I see friends, and I can go to walk with my dad. How do you feel about the holidays? Well, we try to keep it pretty simple. Not, not many people get presents around uh, in our family, but we do uh, do a donation to usually American Friends Service Committee and then uh, get the kids, make them a few cool toys and maybe buy just a couple things. But we try to not get too sucked in. Hi, this is Allison. I like the holidays because you get to hang out and have a very slow day with all your family and no one has to rush anywhere. And this is Emmett and he's never been through the holidays, but I think he's really excited about the wrapping paper. The holidays. Um, I try to ignore them. That's what I do. And it, it cuts down on my stress level greatly. The holidays are just a pain in the butt to me because we're in retail and, and uh, we don't get any vacation until after the holidays. I feel pretty good about the holidays. I think it's a time when we, we want to concentrate on giving back as much as we can and not focus solely on taking so much, but also being able to maybe through the holidays do something for somebody else in this world that doesn't have, you know, that, that doesn't have uh, maybe less fortunate or may not have the luxuries or the, uh, the abilities that we have uh, that may be less fortunate and to be able to do something for them and, um, and give and not, uh, not take so much, but give back, be able to give. Yeah, to be able to give and make it a better world that way by giving back as much as we can. Well, what I like about the holidays is that my friends and I have decided to create the holiday in our own image instead of in the traditional commercial image. And so it's been very enjoyable to get together and figure out what we want to do and make it happen. Uh, avoid Walmart. Is that your only advice? Uh, no, I... Huh. No, I, I don't get really wound up about the holidays at all. I, getting old, I guess. That, that thing about putting uh, Jesus in the mall, that was wrong. We need to put Santa Claus in the church. Thank you. Um, I get through the best I can. I don't really celebrate them. I give thanks every day for creation, and I don't see the need to do anything special other than to see friends as often as I can and do good works whenever I can, and that's about it. I like all the holidays because they're a time of celebration from a variety of cultural perspectives, and I enjoy that diversity. I like celebrating. Love the holidays. You should have holidays all the time. <laughs> I mean, life should be a holiday. I apologize for being a grinchy, bah humbug type person about holidays until Christmas Eve, and then I'm right into it until the Christmas night. Some of the voices from our 2006 holiday special. Joel Mann composed that sort of creepy, weird Christmas music track that you heard in the background. 
You've been listening to Maine Currents here on WERU, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Join us here every Wednesday at 4. On next week's show, we'll have everything you need to know about the new marijuana law in Maine. Call in with your questions, tips for newbies, favorite strains. We'll have some people here to answer your questions. And to keep it tuned here now for Democracy Now!, which is coming up next, followed by Jazz Straight Ahead. Larry's in the house getting ready for you. All here on your community radio station made possible with your support. And if you haven't pitched in your support yet, we still have about $19,500 left to raise to meet our goal for the year. So give us a call at 469-6600 during weekday business hours or go to our website, weru.org, and make a pledge to support community radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. Happy Solstice. Happy holidays. We'll see you next week. Support for WERU 